Okay, our next speaker comes to us from New York City, Dr. Trip Gulick. And Trip is uh, the Director of Infectious Diseases at the Weill Cornell Medical Center uh, in downtown Man- uh, uptown Manhattan, Upper East Side. And uh, Trip is uh, going to give us an overview today on what was new at Croy. Thank you, Mike. Although I'm a New Yorker, some of you know that my grandparents lived in Albany, Georgia. And so every summer we would come down, my sister and I would fly to Atlanta and they'd come pick us up and drive us down. And one time I asked my grandmother, why do we always fly into Atlanta? And she looked at me and she said, honey child, if you go to hell around here, you have to go through Atlanta first. (laughs) True story. Okay, she didn't say honey child, but more or less a true story. So uh, I'm going to talk about CROI this year and really focus on ART, which prompts a couple of, these are my disclosures. And so our objectives are to discuss the latest findings from the recent CROI meeting with a highlight on antiretroviral therapy, talk about the baby case from Mississippi, and talk about investigational HIV drugs. So a big question, we're here in Atlanta, CROI was in Atlanta, did you attend CROI this year? Yes or no? I'm not gonna get into the whole music fight thing. Okay. All right, so 19% of you actually made it to CROI. Now, even if you made it, CROI is a huge conference. It's sometimes hard to see everything. In fact, you can't see everything that was done at CROI. So hopefully I've picked some things that you didn't go to. And for those who didn't go, well, here we go. Have you attended a post-CROI update? Yes, no, or this is it? Okay, so for most of you, this is it. Okay, knowledge question. Which of these investigational drugs is closest to FDA approval? Is it sinicroviroc, dolutegravir, MK1439, or tenofovir alafenamide fumarate, also known as TAF? Okay, we'll see about that. <clears throat> so probably the biggest news from Croy that made the front pages of many of the world's newspapers and all the news services was the case of the baby from Mississippi. Oh, baby. So this was a mother who did not receive perinatal care from Mississippi who presented in labor. She was unaware of her HIV status and underwent rapid testing. Apparently, the delivery was very quick, and she was found to be HIV positive. The physicians made a conscious treatment to treat the baby with three-drug ART, and they used ZDV, 3TC, and nivirapine, and they got to the baby and started treatment within 30 hours. Importantly, and something I didn't know as an adult doc, is that babies really don't have memory CD4 cells. They don't have memory T cells, interestingly. 
So it would be tough to set up a reservoir in a newborn. The mother's viral load at the time of testing was 2,000. The baby was 20,000 copies per mil. They had matched wild-type virus, which was subtype B, as you would expect. And the, on therapy, the baby's viral load decreased, and they followed up with testing at days 7, 12, and 20, and then went below the limit of detection, less than 20, at day 29. They followed the baby with 16 more determinations over the next weeks and months, and the baby continued to be suppressed all that time. Unfortunately, the mother and baby were lost to follow-up, and the mother stopped ART because of the home situation at about 18 months. Six months later, the baby and and now uh, toddler represented for follow-up, and the baby's viral load, much to the surprise of the physician, was suppressed to less than 20 copies, with a a single-copy assay estimated at one copy per mil. Um, They did some extensive work. They found a very small number of copies of HIV DNA, four copies per a million peripheral blood mononuclear cells. There was no replication-competent virus, and the HIV antibody of the baby off therapy for for at least six months was negative. So this uh, is thought to be a cure. Uh, The points that people make about this, one is that we know how to prevent mother-to-child transmission, and that's probably a much better strategy, is to uh, use the tools we have to prevent the transmission in the first place. Um, But that this was compelling for a newborn where the mother did not get the benefit of prenatal care or ART. And secondly, because newborns are so much different than adults, that trying to apply the principles here to adults um, is, is a little far-fetched. But that's the details, I think, of what's known about the baby. Um, there's still some controversy in the field about whether this really represents cure or whether this was post-exposure prophylaxis, and uh, time will tell, I think. So that's the O-baby story. Now, uh, the CDC, and I know there's uh, folks from the CDC here in the crowd, updated the recent U.S. ART drug resistance information um, in recent years, 2007 to 2010. The study population was a convenient sample of newly diagnosed HIV-infected, not newly infected, as you know, it's sometimes hard to tell that, but newly diagnosed, without prior ART in 10 areas across the U.S. uh, that were reported to the CDC through 2011, so really the most recently available data. And they looked at nuke, non-nuke, and protease inhibitor mutations. It was a big study. Over 18,000 patients had their viral sequences assessed. So we're looking at people not on therapy, recently diagnosed, and it turns out 16% of those people had drug mutation sequences. So that's a number to keep in your head. About 16% of people newly diagnosed with HIV will have a drug resistance mutation. And that certainly supports doing genotyping as we do the first time you see a patient or certainly before you start therapy. When they looked at these, no big surprise, the majority, 14%, were one class resistance, 2% two class, and only 0.5% were three class resistance. And again, the bulk of these were either nuke mutations or non-nuke mutations, protease inhibitor mutations were relatively less common. The annual change for any one mutation was not significant, but there were significant increases in one-class mutations and non-nuke mutations over time. 
So again, important information as you work up a newly identified person with HIV disease. There we go. So there are a number of antiretroviral drugs in the pipeline. We have new nukes, non-nukes, protease inhibitors, entry inhibitors, and integrase inhibitors at all stages of development. And uh, there was a lot at CROI that updated us on some of these medications, what I, or uh, uh, investigational drugs. So what I'd like to do is pick five of these that are either the farthest along in development or offer a real promise over some of the, the drugs that we use today. And I'll tell you what was new at CROI about each of these five drugs. So let's start with the nukes. What's our biggest need in the nuke class? Well, I think you'd agree the ones we have today are potent and convenient, but toxicity remains an issue in the nuke class. So enter on the stage TAF, which is tenofovir alafenamide fumarate. It's a prodrug of tenofovir, just like the TDF we use today, but it has different properties in terms of where it's broken down to tenofovir and what tenofovir levels are reached after taking this compound. So you may know the active compound of tenofovir is tenofovir diphosphate. And so what you see here is the TDF that we use today versus levels of different dose levels of the new uh, investigational nuke TAF. And you see at the higher doses you achieve high levels of the important active drug in peripheral blood mononuclear cells. Or said another way, TAF leads to higher levels of tenofovir right where you want it to be, right where the action is, which as uh, Danny told us is in the lymphocytes, and that's, that's where we want the drug delivered. At the same time, on the right-hand side are plasma levels. And again, the TDF that we use today is shown in blue. This is a log plot, and you can see that the levels of TAF are at least tenfold, if not more, lower in the plasma. So what does that mean? The hypothesis here is TAF leads to lower plasma tenofovir levels and that leads to less drug delivery to end organs like the kidney so, and bone. So the hypothesis here is that TAF may concentrate in the lymph nodes where HIV is but have less tenofovir delivered to end organs and may lead to less toxicity, particularly renal and bone. And if that's all true, then that's a real step forward in the nuke class. So that was presented at last year's CROI by Peter Ruain from Los Angeles. And there were several posters and oral presentations about TAF. One thing to know is that TAF does not interact with renal transporters. So that's not true, of course, with other compounds we have. And does not exhibit transporter-dependent cyclic cytotoxicity in vitro. So it looks like it's not a renal toxin, at least in the test tube. Interestingly, in a small pilot study, in patients with severe renal failure, of course you would never use TDF, the tenofovir prodrug we have today, in that group, but TAF at 25 milligrams resulted in no clinically relevant changes in exposure versus healthy controls. So it looks like you would be able to use TAF even in people with renal compromise, which would be, again, a potential step forward. 
But here's the uh, phase two results. These are head-to-head -head comparative results. It's uh, a study of 170 treatment-naive patients with viral load levels at least 5,000 and CD4s above 50. And they were randomized to receive. Everybody got FTC, L-Vitegravir, and Cobacistat. One group used the TDF formulation, so all four drugs in one pill. And that's the uh, marketed quad pill, if you will. And the other group got TAF substituting for TDF, again, in a quad formulation. So this was one pill versus one pill. You could see that the randomization was two to one favoring the investigational TAF over TDF. And we're looking at the proportion less than 50 here. And you could see from the back of the room, 90% in both groups were suppressed to less than 50 by the end of 24 weeks. And that would suggest that TAF has significant virologic activity um, and highly comparable to TDF. Interestingly, if you looked at serum creatinine in the two groups at week 24, in the TAF group, it increased 0.07 compared with the TDF group, where it increased 0.12. Now, you might think clinically, would we even notice either one of those? But statistically, that is a significant difference, um, saying that more creatinine elevations occurred with the TDF formulation than with the TAF formulation. So at least suggesting that there could be less renal toxicity with the TAF formulation. But that's stretching, I would say. What's more convincing, actually, is the bone analysis. So they looked at bone mineral density doing DEXAs, and again, did uh, the scans at week 0 and week 24. The colors are the same here, so TAF is in blue. And you could see less than a 1% decrease in bone mineral density, whether you looked at the spine or the hip, where there's really almost no change. And compare that with TDF in orange, where you see a 25 2% to 2.5% loss in bone mineral density over 24 weeks, uh, looking at the spine and the hip. And both of those were statistically significantly different, disfavoring the TDF associating it with more bone mineral density loss. So preliminary results, phase two results, but suggesting similar activity and possibly less renal and less bone toxicity. One more phase two study that we haven't seen yet is ongoing. It's a similar size, about 150 treatment-naive patients, similar enrollment criteria to the study I just showed you. But this time, they're combining TAF with a protease inhibitor. And uh, what, we're, what we're talking about here is the first one pill once a day containing a protease inhibitor. And it's TAF plus FTC plus darunavir boosted by cobacistat. And that's in comparison to the separate components using TDF, FTC, Darunavir, and again, Cobacistat. So this is a head-to-head -head comparative study. We haven't seen the results from this yet. The phase two study that I just showed you will now be replicated in phase three, so much bigger studies, looking at the same um, study design, FTC, Elvitegravir, and Cobacistat in combination either with TAF, all in one pill, or TDF will be the comparison, comparison arm, all in one pill, head-to-head -head comparative study, two large studies with more than 800 patients each, 
and these would support submission to the FDA for drug approval. So they are currently enrolling. One interesting question that we have in our field that perhaps hasn't been well answered is, if someone starts a regimen of two nukes and a non-nuke and experiences failure, what's the optimal regimen to go to next? We have a lot of options. We usually do well with these people. But these kind of studies have been relatively tough to recruit. And one of the first ones that I've seen came out of the Croy Conference. This was known as the Second Line Study, good name. And basically, it took people who had failed a two-nuke plus a non-nuke regimen, had never taken a protease inhibitor or raltegravir, and were randomized to receive boosted lopinavir either with nukes or the randomization with raltegravir as the second regimen. And you could see it was a well-powered study. There was uh, over 500 patients enrolled and randomized. So as I said, everyone received boosted lopinavir. They got two to three nukes. The most common regimen, as you might expect, was tenofovir with either FTC or 3TC, and that was in about half. Most of the patients used genotyping to select their nukes, or they received raltegravir. And here were the results at week 48. You could see viral loads less than 200, 81% in the nuke group versus 83% with raltegravir, not statistically different. The less than 50 numbers were 70 versus 71, nearly the same. CD4s uh, rose equally in both groups. Treatment discontinuations were the same, uh, as were uh, grade 3, 4 events, perhaps numerically higher with the nuke group. But all in all, the investigators concluded that using boosted PI plus raltegravir as second-line therapy was non-inferior and I didn't mention this, but it was within a 12% margin, um, to using nukes as the second-line um, combination with a boosted PI. So this begins to help us think about what to go to next after someone has experienced failure on the common two-nuke plus non-nuke regimen. What's our biggest need with non-nucleosides? Well, there might be three things we'd look for. One would be less toxic or perhaps different toxicities than the ones we have today. Another benefit would be fewer drug interactions. And a third would be activity against non-nuke resistant virus. There's a new investigational non-nuke called MK1439. Um, in uh, preclinical data, it's potent at low dose. Uh, with uh, negative cytotoxicity and animal toxicity data. Interestingly, it's not a CYP450 inhibitor or inducer, so it may have very few drug-drug interactions. And, importantly, it's active in the test tube against viral strains with mutations that we know well, K103N associated with efavirenz, Y181C associated with nivirapine, and others, including the combination of those two. At the CROI meeting, we saw the first clinical data in HIV-negative men over a short 10 days. And uh, in terms of side effects, there were no rash or CNS events. The only side effect described in these 40 men was headache. And uh, people are often cautioned when you do these kind of studies, people are asked not to drink caffeine before they come in. So often, many of these headaches turn out to be like some of you are having right now, caffeine withdrawal headaches. So probably not associated with the drug. 
and the pharmacokinetics were supportive of once daily dosing. What was also presented was the first data in HIV positive people. So here's the phase 1B study. It was double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, a very small number of patients, only 18, um, who were randomized to receive placebo over, ten, over uh, seven days, and you could see no change in viral load, as you'd expect, or one of two doses of MK1439, and you could see it's quite potent virologically over seven days at either one of the doses they, uh, they tested with about a 1.5 log decrease. So that certainly supports moving forward with this compound into phase two. What do we need in an integrase inhibitor? Well, clearly, raltegravir is widely used, but it's twice a day. Elvitegravir is now on the scene and is well-tolerated and potent, but requires boosting with cobacystat. So perhaps what we'd like is a drug in this class that was once a day that didn't require boosting and potentially has activity against integrase inhibitor-resistant virus. So the compound that is sitting at the FDA right now is dolutegravir. Hmm. Sitting at the FDA right now. Okay. I'm going to remember that. Okay. So what did we learn at Croy about dolutegravir? Well, first is, in terms of reservoir penetration, dolutegravir gets in to the CNS. It also achieves levels in the genital tract and the colorectum. Um, although cervical and rectal fluid levels were lower than plasma, but vaginal and cervical and rectal tissue levels were greater than the protein-adjusted IC90. So those are potentially therapeutically important. The two big studies that are sitting in the FDA were head-to-head -head comparisons. One is dolutegravir versus raltegravir, and the other was dolutegravir versus an efavirenz-based regimen. Um, in both, in the uh, RAL regimen, dolutegravir was non-inferior. In the efavirenz regimen, uh, dolutegravir actually was statistically significantly better at the end of 48 weeks, the first compound ever to beat efavirenz in terms of virological efficacy. Those were 48-week results. We saw an update to 96-week results, and the compound was safe and durable. Drug interactions, there's no drug interaction between dolutegravir and methadone or oral contraceptives, so both of those are important, obviously. And then a clinical study was presented by Anton Posniak from Britain called Sailing. This was a phase three ART experience study, although all the patients were integrase inhibitor naive, and it was optimized background regimen with either raltegravir or dolutegravir. And he presented 24-week results you can see that dolutegravir, 79% were suppressed at 24 weeks versus 70% in the raltegravir group. That does achieve statistical significance, favoring dolutegravir over raltegravir in this setting. CD4 attachment inhibitor. Well, we don't have one of those today, and any compound or drug that has a new mechanism of action obviously would still have activity in people with drug-resistant virus. So we're always interested in drugs that have new mechanisms of action. The one on the scene is BMS663068. This is a small molecule oral HIV attachment inhibitor. So realize it's targeting the very first step where HIV GP120 
binds to the CD4 receptor. This compound binds to GP120 and prevents that interaction. So what's uh, already been published in a small phase one study of 50 people um, is what you see here, and that's the antiviral activity. And you can see over a, a, a short eight days of dosing that this compound, particularly at the higher doses, had a 1.5 long reduction in virus, really proving the concept that a CD4 attachment inhibitor has virologic activity and could be an antiretroviral drug. The PK suggests once or twice a day dosing, dosing, no boosting is needed. One caution was that there was decreased baseline susceptibility in some patients to this drug, although they had never taken it, um, because of some polymorphisms um, in the envelope. So GP120, as you know, is variable. Some people have natural resistance to this compound. Well, that was published data. What, what did we hear new at the CROI meeting? Um, the active drug, this drug, 068, is broken down into the active drug, which is 529. And we now know that it binds to GP120 prior to GP120 binding to the CD4. So it's really attacking the virus even before it's associated with the cell. And it restricts HIV-GP120 from changing, and that's what prevents its binding to the CD4 receptor. They did uh, pharmacokinetic interactions with atazanavir or boosted atazanavir and found no significant interaction. So it's in an early stage of development, currently in phase two studies. CCR5 antagonists. So we have one, Maraviroc, which we don't use a lot. There's a new compound that's not only a CCR5, but a CCR2 antagonist. What's CCR2? That's a receptor that sits on the surface of macrophages that is a mediator of inflammation. So thinking about Dr. Duick's talk, maybe we could have a compound that was both an antiretroviral and an anti-inflammatory compound. So the one on the scene is Sinicroviroc. It's an investigational CCR5 and CCR2 inhibitor. This was the phase two study presented by Joe Gaff uh, from Houston. And uh, it was a study of 143 treatment-naive patients, viral loads at least 1,000, CD4s at least 200, who had documented R5 virus using the tropism assay. They were randomized to three arms, all received tenofovir FTC, and then they were randomized to either Sinicroviroc 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams, or the control arm here is a Favarin's. You see from the back of the room, if you look at less than 50 data, very similar performance, about 75% in all three groups. However, there were more virologic failures in the Sinicroviroc groups compared to the Efavirenz group where there were more toxicity failures in that group. Consequently, moving forward, Sinicroviroc is going into phase three studies, but interestingly, will now attempt to replace the nucleosides rather than Efavirenz in an initial regimen. They did look at inflammatory markers as, one, as well. Here's one that Dr. Dueck mentioned, soluble CD14. And so when you looked at the efavirenz arm, you actually saw levels of this inflammatory marker increased and compared that with the Sinicroviroc arm where both of the doses tested led to decreases over 24 weeks. What's the clinical relevance of this? We don't know yet, but it's interesting. 
Now, there was a lot of interest at the meeting on new formulations of drug, or, or some people say, how can we do better than one pill once a day? Many people do great on that. And the answer is, what if we had something we could dose really infrequently? And so there's a renewed interest in nano formulations. And there was a whole symposium on that um, from, uh, hosted by Marta Bafido, looking at long-acting antiretrovirals that would require infrequent dosing. And some of the people that presented were looking at nano formulations of adizanivir, ritonavir, and efavirenz. And there are other ones that are being looked at as well. In fact, one has already been studied clinically, and that's a nanoformulation of rilpivirine. As you know, FDA approved non-nuke. We have a good safety profile on this already, and there's a new long-acting parenteral formulation called rilpivirine LA for long-acting. Once monthly dosing would be possible, given IM. And so for some patients, that could potentially be a good option. We know that it achieves tissue levels. Um, it gets into lymph nodes tenfold higher than the blood in an animal study and does reach levels in cervical vaginal fluids and rectal tissue, um, although they're lower in vaginal tissue itself and rectal fluid. There is some clinical data that was presented at last year's CROI where they gave a single dose of the rilpivirine, sorry, a single administration at three doses and followed uh, HIV negative people and really found no significant safety concerns and characterized the pharmacokinetics. And this has led to support to look at this compound both for treatment and for prevention. And in fact, there's an interesting pilot safety study going on right now which combines this long-acting formulation with one I'm about to talk about in HIV-negative people. Obviously, you wouldn't just want to treat with a non-nucleoside, so it requires other drugs in combination. So here is that other drug. This is an investigational integrase inhibitor. When given in pill form, it shows nice virologic activity, um, and it's actually a relative of dolutegravir. However, they were able to use a nanotechnology for formulation for sub-Q and IM injections. Look at the half-life of this drug. It's on the order of several months. And so what do we mean by that? Now, this is a PK curve, so one dose at time zero, and you follow drug levels from left to right. Usually, when you look at this curve, you're looking at hours or maybe days. We're looking at weeks here. So realize what we're saying. At some of these doses, up to a year later, you could still detect the drug after one dose. So this compound really sticks around. In fact, if you you look at the uh, protein-adjusted IC90, you'd like to be above that. And you look at 12 weeks, so if you dosed it once every three months, you could see most of the doses exceed that, which would support that level of uh, dosing. So this is being explored right now, probably for dosing once every three months. There was a PrEP study using this drug in macaques that was presented. Um, they looked at 16 male macaques and administered this uh, long-acting formulation of this integrase inhibitor twice over four weeks, comparing it to placebo, did rectal challenges, and found no infections in the monkeys that received the integrase inhibitor versus the placebo group where all were infected. So interesting drug, again, both for treatment and for prevention. 
And then another interesting PrEP study was one of the first intravaginal rings. This was using tenofovir. Um, again, this is a monkey study. So they use a reservoir that emits tenofovir over time. And they studied 18 macaques. Six used the vaginal rings. Uh, 12 were controls, six real-time and six historical. And they challenged vaginally with shiv um, up to 16 weeks. And as you can see, none of the six macaques with the vaginal rings were infected versus nearly all without the rings. The rings were well retained in the monkeys and were well tolerated over five months. So this will support moving forward to human studies as well. While PrEP continues to be an um, important topic of interest, um, if you look at all the recent PrEP studies, there is a big correlation with the amount of efficacy and the amount of adherence um, in terms of blood samples where things are detected. So the PrEP was approved by the FDA on the basis of the IPREC study in gay men and the Partners PrEP study in discordant couples in Africa. But two recent studies in women, the FEMPREP and presented at CROI, the VOICE study, really add concern to PrEP, and that is the fact that low adherence levels in both of these studies, you can see what they are here, led to essentially no efficacy demonstrated for PrEP. So the message here is if we're going to use PrEP, adherence is really very important. And my last data slide, one of the ongoing vexing problems in our field is what to do with someone who is doing well on ART, has achieved an undetectable viral load, but whose CD4s don't go up or have a blunted response after they go up. And so people have been trying all different kinds of things. At CROI, we saw a study of Maraviroc and a study of chloroquine, and the bottom line was neither one worked in terms of increasing CD4s. So we currently have no therapeutic approach for those patients other than to simply continue their regimen. So back to the question. If you get this wrong, you have to go home. Which of these uh, investigational drugs is closest to FDA approval? Sinicroviroc, dolutegravir, MK1439, or TAF? All right, so only, let's see, 13 and 15% of you have to go home. So dolutegravir, phase three studies sitting at the FDA right now, they have to make a decision legally by August. So given the impressive results of the phase three, dolutegravir will likely be the 28th drug approved for the treatment of HIV infection. All right, so thanks for listening, and I'll take some questions. question. Uh, with the TAF, do we know anything about brain penetration since that seems to be a concern for tenofovir? I think there is some data in, about brain that's been done from animal studies. It all depends on if you have the enzyme in the tissue to break TAF down into tenofovir, but I actually don't know those data, but I bet they're, they're out there. Okay. Um, 
Will, I think this is Dolutegavir, although the handwriting is a little hard to read, be given once or twice daily? Yeah, sorry if I didn't make that clear. Dolutegavir is a once-daily drug that does not require boosting. Okay, and what are the CDC resistance implications for HIV scale-up in Africa if we have this amount of resistance in the U.S.? Yeah, good question. Um, You need local data to make recommendations. Um, So the drug resistance data that we have in the U.S. really only informs the U.S. Uh, We need to look to Africa to provide similar data to really understand how that might impact treatment decisions in Africa. Now, you covered the once-daily new quad potentially with dolutegravir. So when we have two once-daily, you know, dolutegravir versus elvitegravir, then which one should we use for our treatment naive people? What, what's the benefit of one versus the other? Yeah, it's a great question. So today, as everybody knows, we have three one-pill once-a-days, right? So 2006, TDF-FTC of Favarins, we've been using that widely. We understand its pluses. We understand its minuses. The next one, TDF-FTC Rilpivirine, approved in 2011, we now know fewer CNS side effects, but doesn't work as well with viral load levels above 100,000 at baseline and shouldn't be used in that group. That helps us with those two. Then comes the third one, TDF-FTC, Elvitegravir, and Cobacistat, all in one pill. And the question is, who do you use that for? So it might be someone who's worried about the afavirin side effects, but has a baseline viral load above 100,000. Maybe that's the person. Then coming soon to a store near you is Tenofovir or TAF, FTC, Darunavir and Cobacistat. And who would you use a quad that's PI based in? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, You might say, well, when do we turn to boosted protease inhibitors today? And it's sometimes in people where you're worried about adherence. Because as we know, protease inhibitors are more tolerant of incomplete adherence. So maybe that's the person that you might use it for. Just to make it complicated, the fifth one pill once a day regimen that is on the looming on the horizon is a bacavir 3TC dolutegravir all in one pill. And so we're going to have five choices of one pill once a day. It's brilliant, right, for us and for our patients. But how we decide who gets what, I think will take some more time. And part of the question may have been whether you think people who fail elvitegravir can be salvaged with a once daily dolutegravir to nuke combination. Yeah. Do we have any data either way? So I, because it wasn't presented at CRA, I didn't share this with you, although I alluded to it, and that is raltegravir and elvitegravir have low barriers to resistance and are completely cross-resistant to one another. So you only get one shot with either one of those. Dolutegravir has a higher barrier to resistance, and it's active against many of the strains that are resistant to RAL or LV. So potentially there's a sequencing in this class, or potentially you start with dolutegravir because it has a higher barrier to resistance. And there is clinical data to support that. And then one of the questions from the audience is, when you look at cervical, vaginal, or rectal fluid levels, and for a particular drug it's low, how can you then proceed and use that as a preventive drug? Yeah, great question. So the point that's been made to me about this is that fluids aren't the same as tissues. 
And where we really want the drugs to be is in the tissues. So not every study looks at tissue because it's so much easier just to collect the fluids. Um, I think you need to look at both. Some of the data I showed you, it was low in the fluid but high in the tissue. So it would seem like it would be a good thing to use uh, for prevention. Okay. And although it didn't come from the audience, you gave a nice sort of geographic or timeline description of what happened with the baby. But do you have any personal opinions of why this actually worked? Yeah. Yeah, well, if I had to guess, first of all, it was the baby truly infected. It's still debated. But many people make the point that the baby's initial viral load was 20,000 and the mom's was 2,000. So that discrepancy in the height of the virus in the baby seems to suggest that the baby was truly infected. And not just an auto-transfusion. Exactly, because her viral load was right. so low, you know, you'd right. expect the babies to be similar. Some people have noted that in the baby, uh, once they were, the baby was on therapy, their viral load came down nicely, just like we see in, in people who are treated, so potentially. So I, I guess the baby, I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> probably infected, and, uh, and again, the point that I made that babies don't have memory T-cells. So if there's no reservoir to set up, then you don't get long-lived infection, and potentially that's why the baby was cured. And that obviously has no applicability to adults, or kids, for that matter. Is there somebody at one of the back microphones? Oh, just one question, sorry. Okay. I did not send it. Okay. Uh, Dr. Hill, it has a time coming. Um, to push efavirenz out of the preferred list yet. Say that again. Has the time come? Okay, everybody awake now? Efavirenz uh, still have to be on the preferred list to start treatment. So um, I, was, I sat on the DHHS guidelines panel for... I think seven years, but they recently kicked me off. So uh, I used to not be able to answer that question, but now I can sort of take a, a pitch at it. Don't worry, it wasn't for bad reasons that they kicked me off. My time had come, they said. Um, anyway, well, what makes a preferred regimen in the guidelines? Um, the, the guidelines panels look at all available data. They look for um, effectiveness, durability of data, convenience, and toxicity. So efavirenz um, ha has been there for a while as the preferred non-nuke. Rilpivirine was considered briefly um, and relegated to alternative status as, as outlined in the, the guidelines, really because of its suboptimal potency at the higher viral load levels and because of some of the, the, the more short-term data that was available. Same with L-vitegravir. So, but your point's a good one. As we continue to get options and we get longer data on them, might the preferred regimens be adjusted? And I would say sure. And the best example of that actually is the protease inhibitors. So up until three, four years ago, preferred protease inhibitor was lopinavir. And then once it had head-to-head -head studies, darunavir or adizanavir were found to both be as effective and less toxic. Lopinavir got bumped and darunavir and adizanavir went up. And it's particularly true, I think, here in Georgia, where for one of the big Medicaid managed care organizations, you have to prove that you can't tolerate efavirenz before they'll give you elvitegravir. So you have to dispense a month's worth of efavirenz, and they have to come back and claim at least that they were un incapable of tolerating it. So that obviously is not medicine, right? Yeah. It's just irritating. Yeah. 
All right, well, thank you very much. That was very good. Thanks. And that should give.